Imagine you are at the beach. You're heading into the sea for a swim by yourself. You leave your phone by your towel on the beach and hope that no one tries to steal your phone. Well, there is one thing you can do to make your phone four times safer, to deter thieves and keep your phone safe. Today, you'll learn what that is, why it's relevant in business, and five more real-world experiments I've conducted to test behavioural science principles. All of that coming up, but first, here's another podcast I'd recommend. Success Story, hosted by Scott D. Clary, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Success Story features Q&A sessions with successful business leaders, keynote presentations, and conversations on sales, marketing, business, startups, and entrepreneurship. Back in December last year, Scott did an episode with marketing legend Seth Godin on how to hire well, which I think is well worth tuning into. So listen to Success Story wherever you get your podcasts. In 2015, Thomas Moriarty led an experiment on a beach in New York. A researcher posing as a beachgoer set up a blanket about five feet away from a random person on another blanket. The researcher then proceeded to pull out a radio and listen to a rock station at a high volume. A couple of minutes later, the researcher walked over to the neighbour's blanket and asked one of two things. In the control group, the researcher said, Excuse me, I'm here on my own and I have no matches. Do you have a light? In the experiment group, the researcher said, Excuse me, I'm going to the boardwalk for a few minutes. Would you mind watching my things? to which the neighbour always agreed in this experiment. After this brief exchange, the researcher headed off towards the boardwalk, leaving their radio playing loudly where they'd left it on the blanket. A few minutes later, another researcher, this one playing the role of the thief, walked over to the blanket, picked up the radio, and quickly walked off in another direction. What do you think happened? And what do you think you would do in this scenario? Well, The researchers found that in the control group, where no commitment to watch the things had been requested, only 4 out of 20 people um, actually tried to intervene with the thief and stop the radio from being stolen. However, in the experiment group, where people had been asked to keep an eye on the neighbour's things, 19 out of 20 people responded and intervened with the thief. The researcher Thomas Moriarty was testing something called the consistency principle. It's the idea that we humans like to stay consistent with our previous declarations. So we are four times more likely to stop a thief if we've previously told someone that we would do something. The effect is visible in all sorts of human behaviour. Robert Cialdini, the author of Influence, describes an experiment that showcases the power of the consistency principle. It was conducted with two groups of people who were asked to contribute to a cancer charity. One week before the donation was requested, the people in one of the groups had been given a cancer-aware badge to wear for a week. When the researchers subsequently asked for a donation, the people in this group, the one who were given the badge, donated much more than the control group. The badge could be considered a consistency device which got people to think of themselves as people who were supportive of the cause. And so, when they were asked for a donation, they gave more to stay consistent with this view. We like to stay consistent with our past behaviour and our past views, even if those behaviours or views were inspired by someone else. This obviously affects all aspects of our lives, how we vote, how we eat, who we like, who we hate. 
Of course, marketers and business folk use this bias to nudge consumers towards certain behaviours. To help explain, I've invited Nancy Harhut back on the show. Nancy is co-founder and chief creative officer at HBT Marketing. She's written a fantastic book on applying psychological principles to marketing. It is called Using Behavioural Science in Marketing, and it's a bit of a goldmine for marketers like me. Today we're going to walk through five of Nancy's marketing principles and then I'll run a test on each of them to see if those principles work for me. So let's kick off with the consistency principle. Here is Nancy explaining the idea behind the consistency principle. Yeah, so you know the idea there is to just get that first small yes, because if you can get that first small yes, you're much more likely to get a second yes, a third yes, a fourth yes. That consistency is is such a strong driver because what it does is it it frees us up from having to think. You know, it's a mental shortcut. It's like I don't have to process all the the inputs, all the data. I just go, oh yeah, right. I you know that's who I am, or those are the people I do business with, or uh, you know I've already vetted them and I trust them. And uh, so there are there are a number of ways to apply it. We were doing some work with a publisher, and uh, so what we did is we offered a free trial for a certain number of weeks for a newspaper. And um, then afterwards, as that free trial was coming to an end, we, you know, we wrote to people and we said, you know, because you accepted our free trial offer, you're now entitled to an exclusive 25% discount. And we got a double digit response on that. And, you know, part of that was definitely consistency. I mean, yes, we called it an exclusive discount. So there might be a little bit of scarcity in there as well. And uh, perhaps a little bit of the endowment effect, you're entitled to it, you've earned it, you deserve it, it's yours. Um, but just the idea, I think that was the the bigger driver was this commitment and consistency. You know, you took the, the trial membership. Now let's kind of upgrade you to, you know, a, a, a full membership. Simply reminding folks that they previously accepted the free trial made them 10% more likely to go and buy the full product. Nancy's used this principle successfully as a marketer, but she's also experienced it as a consumer. I received a uh, uh, a promotion from Amtrak, which is a, one of the you know the train services here, and they said, "Hey, if you want to get." Uh, double points during our special promotional period, you need to sign up now. You need to pre-register. So very simple request, right? A very small commitment. I'm not making plans to take a trip. I'm not laying out any money to buy a ticket. I'm just saying, yeah, I want to get the double points during the promotional period, right? So it's an easy yes. But then, you know, a month or two passes and now it's time for the promotion. And so they sent me another email and said, hey, you signed up. Now all you have to do is travel, right? So it's like you got the first small yes. You signed up for the promo period or for the promotion during the the promo period. Well, now, I mean, if you did that, like why, you know, might as well buy a ticket. Like that was the whole idea anyway. And it just kind of like, you know, steps you along the way. So it's like the first step is, yeah, just sign up. Then the second step is, all right, now buy a ticket. At this stage, I was pretty sold on consistency. It saves radios from being stolen at the beach, it boosts charity donations, and it grew sales for Nancy. So I decided to test it. For my test, I tried to encourage my email subscribers to give me a review for my podcast. I sent emails to 400 loyal subscribers who have been following me for over a year, asking them for a review. But to test the consistency principle, I experimented with the subject line of the email. For the control email, it simply said, could you leave a review for Nudge? Pretty simple stuff. But for the consistency version, I said, you've been following Nudge for 12 months. Could you leave a review? The idea was that if I reminded people that they've consistently supported the show, they'd be more likely to leave me a review. And it worked. The open rate for the consistency version was 7% higher than the control. 
but more importantly was the click rate. That's the number of people who actually left a review. That was almost two times higher for the consistency version. Merely telling people that they had been a fan for a while doubled my reviews. I love this experiment because it's so simple, it's so small, just changing a few words made a huge difference. And I think that's what's so fascinating to me about behavioural science. Often tiny changes have the biggest impact. And I think there's one behavioural science principle that showcases this the best. It is framing. Simply put, the way you frame something can dramatically change how people view it. I'll give an example to explain. There is a a study from 2002 by a researcher, Brian Wansick. He went into restaurants and slightly tweaked the names of certain product descriptions. He wanted to see if changing the name of dishes on a menu could change people's attitudes towards those dishes. In the study, Wansick changed the name of some items from, for example, courgette cookies to grandma's zucchini cookies. He changed fish fillet with salad to succulent Italian seafood fillet. These small, subtle framing changes increased sales by 27% and improved people's attitudes towards the food, the restaurant and their intention to return. This is all from a simple name change and it shows that framing is a powerful nudge. But it doesn't just change what dishes diners buy, it can also change people's political views. In a 2020 experiment conducted in Germany, researchers found that supporters of a particular political party were more likely to agree with statements that were framed as being endorsed by that party versus not being endorsed by that party. So let me explain. Participants would hear the same statements. They would hear stuff like, uh, we should take in more refugees. And it turns out, the participants were more likely to agree with that statement if they also knew that their political party endorsed it, but they would actually disagree with that same statement if they heard their political party was against it. This was regardless of whether you were left or right-leaning. The researchers concluded that by changing the frame, the very same political statements changed voters' agreements with these statements. Simply changing the frame changed attitudes. It showed that people could actually agree or disagree with a simple idea just based on how it's framed. And Nancy has another eye-opening example of how a small tweak to a frame can change our perception. Yeah, yeah. So um, it turns out that the words that we use and, and, uh, you know, the way that we use them, the order that we use them influences not only how people understand the information, but how they respond to it. Uh, There's a, there's another researcher. Her name is Elizabeth Loftus. I don't know if you've heard this study or not, but she had people read, uh, not read. She had people watch a video of a car accident. And everyone watched the same video. And then some people were asked to estimate how fast the cars were going when they smashed. And other people were asked to estimate how fast the cars were going when they collided. So again, everyone saw the same video. Everyone was essentially asked the same question. The only difference was the verb, smashed or collided. But everyone saw it with their own eyes. When smashed was used, people estimated that the cars were traveling at 40.8 miles per hour. When collided was used, uh, people estimated that the cars were traveling at 31.8 miles per hour, which is a difference of over 28%. You know, again, everyone saw the exact same video, but how the question was framed made a huge difference. You know, smashed versus collided. You know, smashed seems so much more violent. Collided, oh, just a little bit of a tap. I find this experiment you know, actually a little scary because our perception of an event can clearly change dramatically just by tweaking a word used to describe that event. 
it makes me think a lot of um, police investigations and interrogations. Now, there are a lot of problems with these interrogations surrounding memory, authority bias, and so on, and we don't have time to cover all of that today. But this study clearly shows that when investigators are collecting these eyewitness testimonies, the words the investigators use to prompt the witness could dramatically change their testimony. Simply saying crashed versus collided can influence how someone remembers an event. And it's really scary how much our perception can change just based off one word. But for marketers and for business people, it is vital that we understand this effect because it will determine how your brand is viewed. Another study I read about uh, a company had to charge for shipping and they were going to charge $5. And when you find out you have to charge for shipping, you know, part of you just dies inside because, you know, people hate to pay. But so then you think, well, it's only $5. You know, everyone knows what $5 is. But they tested $5, uh, you know, a $5 fee versus a small $5 fee. When they framed it as a small $5 fee, they got a 20% uptake. So it's just really interesting what, what we can do with uh, with this notion of framing. There was, there's another study that came out of the University of Geneva, I think it was, and they asked people if it was okay to smoke while they prayed. And 96% of the people said, no, it just, I don't seem sacrilegious or something. But then they asked people, is it okay to pray while you smoke? And 97% of the people said yes. So 96% no, 97% yes. Same two things happening simultaneously, smoking and praying, praying and smoking. Um, but just, you know, the order the, the, you know, of the words in the question, the way it was framed made a, made a huge difference. There was a study that came out of Stanford that found that framing things in terms of time and experience could actually be more powerful than framing things in terms of money because Time is something you can never get back. Once it's gone, it's gone. When you're spending time, you're experiencing something usually. And very often there's some emotion involved in what you're experiencing. And, and we know that emotion drives decisions. And uh, so what they found was the idea of framing things in terms of time and experience could actually be more effective than framing things in terms of money. And, and I think they based it, interestingly enough, on a lemonade stand experiment. So they set up this lemonade stand uh, uh, just on, on the walkway to a park. And as people came by, they saw one of three signs. They would continue to rotate the signs. And some one sign just said, you know, uh, spend a little time and enjoy some lemonade. One said, spend a little money and enjoy some lemonade. And the third one said, enjoy some lemonade. And the one that worked the best, they got more people to stop. They got higher ratings for customer service because everyone who bought a cup of lemonade was asked to rate the service. Um, and then people were uh, invited to pay whatever they wanted between you know one price and another, just like in between these two prices, pay whatever you want spend a little time and enjoy some lemonade, people spent more money, actually. So, they, you know, more people stopped, they spent more money, they rated the experience more highly when people were invited to spend a little time and enjoy some lemonade. So, uh, based on that, the study's authors said, you know, framing things in terms of time and experience uh, could actually be more beneficial than just focusing on, on money. It looks like the evidence is pretty compelling, eh? Lots of studies show the power of framing. Saying, pay this small $5 fee compared to pay this $5 fee increases uptake by 20%. So I decided to test it. I sent out two Google surveys. This was before Google survey was, was taken down. The surveys went to 200 people and the 200 people were split into two groups who each received one different survey. The first survey, the control survey said, would you consider listening to a new podcast this week? The second one, which had a slightly different framing, said, would you spend a little time listening to a new podcast this week? Now, I'd hoped by framing it as just a little time, my second survey would have a better response rate. 
But I'm going to be totally honest, as I always am on this show, this test failed. People were less likely to say they would listen to a podcast when I framed it as just a little time. You can see the results of this experiment and the others by clicking the links in the show notes. But let's debate it. Why did this fail? How come I didn't get the same results as Nancy? Firstly, I'm reaching out to people with no prior context. Random people seeing this survey without any other prompts. I'm not asking them to listen to my podcast or another podcast. I'm just saying listen to anything. So I think that's affecting the results. Also, there's no guarantee that this random group of Brits are even podcast listeners. They are just random people. I'd imagine I'd probably get more consistent, you know, accurate results if I just targeted podcast fans. So this test failed and it should really highlight something which is framing can be very powerful, but some aspects of framing, especially priming, have been struggled to have been proven in you know multiple tests and have suffered from this replication bias where people are str- struggling to replicate the results of these tests. So it really is one everyone should test before they start trying it out. Okay, in a bit we'll talk about three more principles, including one that both KFC and Burger King have repeatedly used. But first, let's take a quick 60-second break. As many of you know, I have just quit my job to go full-time on Nudge. But prior to that, I spent my career working in startups. And startups aren't easy. It's long hours, small teams, tiny budgets. It makes marketing hard work. But it doesn't have to be. HubSpot for startups can help grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects your sales, marketing and support all together. So you can increase your leads, you can fast-track your deals, smooth out support and join a platform that more than 190,000 top brands trust. HubSpot also offer discounts for startups on their top-rated customer platform and not the type of discounts that barely make a dent. So if you're ready to boost your marketing without breaking the bank, look no further than HubSpot for startups. To see how much you can save, visit hubspot.com startups. All right, let's move on to another principle. Now, if you're a keen listener of the show, you will have heard this principle before. And if not, you've almost certainly experienced it. Behavioral scientists have found that people often use the amount of time or effort that is put into something as an indicator of the quality of that thing. So input bias is essentially a shorthand way us humans evaluate value. The amount of input becomes a proxy for the resulting quality. We use this as, a, as another heuristic, a shortcut when making a decision. So if we hear that James Dyson took five years and 5,000 prototypes to create his vacuum cleaner, then we will value that vacuum cleaner more and we'll spend more to buy it. Here's Nancy to explain. Yeah, so it's, um, you know, again, it comes back to those decision-making shortcuts and a lot of times you know, we're not really sure how to assess something. And so the amount of time or effort that goes into it becomes a proxy for its quality. So if you spend a lot of time or a lot of effort creating something or, or developing something, we think as a result, well, it must be good. So there was a study where uh, people were asked to evaluate two different reports. One of them was on um, electronic ink and the other was on optical switches. So again, you know, probably two topics that people don't know a lot about, right? And it's like, all right, I want you to read these two articles, you know, and I want you to tell me which one is better. But people were also told that the uh, electronic ink study, the the report took two hours and 37 minutes to create, and the optical switches one took 34 minutes to create. And 
hands down by a huge margin, everyone said that the electronic ink, the one that took two hours and 37 minutes to create was the better one. But when the researchers switched it and said it was actually the, you know, they told other people, oh, optical switches or electronic ink, optical switches took two hours and 37 minutes to create. Suddenly everyone thought that was the, the better one. Just saying this report took two hours longer to prepare made participants value the report more. Now, obviously, in this experiment, the participants aren't experts on the content of electrical ink or optical switches, so they rely on this heuristic to decide the quality. And let's face it, most of your audience won't be experts either, so highlighting the amount of time you've spent creating something should, at least most of the time, make people value it more. I came across a, an article and it was introducing, I think, Burger King's new French fries. And it said it took 10 years to develop and they were, uh, you know, tested in three different continents. And I thought, what a fabulous example, you know, and, and the truth is maybe they're good. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're good because it was, you know, all that research that went into it, or maybe they would have been good, you know, 30, you know, 30 days outside the gate and they didn't have to do all of the other research, you know, or maybe all of the research resulted in just a mediocre product. Who really knows? But the human tendency is to think with all of this input, with all the time and effort that went into it, it must be good, you know? So I, you know, I recommend to my clients, you know, don't go on and on and on about yourself because you know, that'll make people's eyes, you know, glaze over, but some well-placed input bias, you know, talk about the fact that, uh, you know, maybe you, you, you know, interviewed 10,000 customers before you introduced this, uh, you know, this, this new application or that it took, you know, a team of 30 scientists in, uh, you know, three different continents working on something, or, you know, it took you three years before you could arrive at the, you know, the proper prototype for this, or that you tested, you know, 70 of your competitors to find out how to make sure that your particular product or service was going to be better than theirs, you know, things like that, or saying something is never machine sewn, it's, you know, it's always hand stitched, but just the idea of effort that goes into something, you don't have to go on and on and on, but some of those little, you know, just those little nuggets of information, people will use those as a, as a shorthand way of, of determining whether or not something is of quality. And the more the effort, the more time that goes into something, the more people will think, yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's going to be a sure bet. I'm going to like that. That's going to be good for me to, to engage with. So Burger King, they really love using the input bias. Not only do they talk about how they've spent 10 years developing their fries, but they also put an input bias slogan on all of their stores, as far as I can tell. In most Burger Kings across Europe and elsewhere in the world, you'll see in big letters on the inside and outside of their stores the phrase, flame grilled since 1954. Now that is there to trigger the input bias, to make people realise how long they've been working on their burgers. And Burger King aren't alone in their use of this bias. KFC, they talk about the 11 secret herbs and spices that go into their chicken. Heinz famously tell people that they've created 57 varieties of products before coming up with their famous ketchup. These mammoth companies do this because they know input bias changes how people value their products. Now, I've tested the input bias before on this show, and I'll share that test again for those who haven't heard it. For that test, I created two Reddit ads. One said, learn six memorable marketing lessons with Nudge, and then a link to go and listen. The other 
which was the input bias version, this one read, I've spent 480 minutes listening to marketing experts. Here are the six best lessons I've learned. That second version is clearly using input bias. It highlights the amount of time I've put into creating that podcast. And the input bias version, well, it worked. I spent $100 on both sets of Reddit ads and the input bias version had a 45% higher click-through rate, which you know, really is quite impressive considering I only changed a line of copy. Imagine how much this could save a multinational advertiser if they applied this across their ads. Next up, I asked Nancy about something called the information gap. This is another cognitive bias. It means when some information is withheld from us, we actually become more interested in the topic. In the past on the show, I've referred to this as the curiosity gap. Now, ultimately, I think the information gap and curiosity gap are closely linked. In fact, they might be the same bias. But Nancy calls it the information gap, so I'll stick with that for the rest of this show. Here's Nancy explaining the bias. Yeah, so the information gap theory is a term that was coined by a neuroeconomist named George Lowenstein. And what he found was if there's a gap between what you know and what you want to know, you'll take action to close the gap. So if there's a gap between what you know and what you want to know, you'll take action to close the gap. And in marketing, of course, we want people to take action, right? We want them to, to buy or to try or you know, buy again or click or call. So we're, we're all about getting the action and a great way to get people to take the action is to point out that there's something they don't know, but that they would like to know. We did something for a a client. They were setting up a trade show booth at a conference and they happened to be doing uh, dental insurance and they were surrounded or they were going to be surrounded by uh, all these other exhibitors who had the hottest new dental instruments or technology or like great things for your practice, you know, and here they were selling insurance, you know, and you could just imagine how boring that would be, right? You take dentists and you add insurance and you have nobody, right? And, uh, but even though, you know, it was dentists who were going to be at this, the trade show, still it was like, oh, there's all cool new whiz-bang technology, cool new tools, and then the insurance booth. And we thought, all right, how are we going to get people to the booth? And so, you know, one thing you think is, well, we'll have a really good giveaway. And that could work, but then you get the wrong people. You get people to just come for the giveaway, but they're not necessarily engaged in the, in the messaging. So we rolled out this campaign. It was called Find Your Five to Seven. Find Your Five to Seven. And and that's what we were talking about. And the copywriter who had come up with this had dug into um, the research and found that uh, it was recommended that that, uh, on average, a dentist put away, you know, or or anyone really for that matter, put away five to seven years worth of income uh, and, you know, have that kind of in reserve just in case they got disabled. And so this idea of saying, you know, find your five to seven, well, what is five to seven? What is that all about? What are they talking about? And then they, you know, went on to say it's actually higher for dentists than it is for the general public. And so that was even more intrigued because this is dentists that are the uh, the target and they're looking at it like, ooh, I have a higher five to seven than most people. Well, that's good. I don't know what it is yet, but that's still good, I guess, you know, and uh, it ended up getting quite a few people to come to the booth and they could take their, you know, little uh, you know, it was, I think, a, a, a quiz that helped them arrive at their five to seven. But while they were taking the quiz or while they were lined up to take the quiz, it gave the sales reps a chance to chit chat with them. And then they could, you know, follow up uh, post-conference with some more messaging surrounding the five to seven. So it actually worked very, very well for them. And what the research shows is someone has to be a little interested. They need to know, you know, a little bit about the topic or have some interest in the topic. Uh, 
because if it's something they're completely uninterested in, they're, they're just not going to care. Um, but they can't know so much about it that they already know the answer. So it's finding that sweet spot where somebody is interested in something and wants to know more. And, uh, and that can be just really very, very compelling. By asking dentists what their five to seven is, but not revealing the answer, well, it piqued their interests and made them pay attention. I've shared this before on Nudge, but leaving something unknown can also make you seem more attractive. This study, cited in Cialdini's book Persuasion, asked women which man they would date out of a selection of men. Now, the women saw a picture of each of the different men. However, alongside the image of some of the men, there was an extra little bit of information. Some of the men had shared if they found the women who were rating them attractive or not and and, and how much they rated their attractiveness. The women could see these scores next to the man's face and would then decide who they wanted to pick. But some of the men had their ratings uh, withheld. So the women couldn't see the ratings of some of the men. So the women didn't know what that man thought of her unless she decided to select him for a date. And it turns out the men who hadn't revealed whether they found the woman attractive or not were far more likely to get a date. Men who were attractive and said the woman was also attractive were ignored in favour of men who kept their cards close to themselves. Leaving something unknown will pique the interest of others. And I tested this with Nudge. On one of the previous episodes, I did a deep dive on the football manager Jose Mourinho's career. I looked at his motivational tactics, his persuasion tactics and his leadership skills um, and all of these things that he'd used throughout his career. Now, I presumed this episode would perform well because I used Jose Mourinho's name in the title of the show. I imagined a lot of people would be interested by this and some might even think that Jose Mourinho had come on the show himself. He hadn't. It was just me analysing him, but I put his name in the title. But I also used this as an opportunity to test the information gap. So for my test, I sent, as usual, an email promoting the episode to my email subscriber list, and I created two different subject lines. The control was the title of the episode. It read, Jose Mourinho, do mind games really work? Then I came up with an information gap version, something that would intrigue people without revealing everything. This one read, Jose Mourinho on nudge, dot, 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 question mark. Now, it's a little mischievous. Obviously, Mourinho didn't come on the show, but this subject line really worked. The information gap kicked in, and it had a 7% better open rate and increased listeners by 41% for the episode. This is another tiny, cost-free change that had a significant impact on behaviour. If you're trying to convince a group of people to do something, you should try and apply this stuff because it can really make a difference. All right, time for the last bias. And this is something that dramatically changes behavior, partly because we've been taught it from such a young age. It is called the authority bias. Here's Nancy to explain. You know, I think the the thing about authority is when we were children, we were taught to, you know, to recognize authority, to respect authority. It's kind of like instilled in us, ingrained in us. So as a result, uh, you know, by the time we're adults, we're, you know, pretty much used to listening to what an authority says, or we're pretty inclined to do what an authority tells us to do. So if a marketer says, hey, this is a really great product, we say, well, of course, you're going to say it. it's your product. But when someone on the outside comes in and says, this is a really good product, we're like, oh, all right, that's, you know, it's great. There was a study that I read about. I mean, it wasn't a study actually, but it was an example of the authority principle that I read about. Two guys um, 
dressed up as bank guards, positioned themselves outside of a Wells Fargo ATM, hung a sign on the ATM that said, the ATM is broken. Please give your deposits to the guards. And people came in, read the sign. Most of them didn't even say a word. They just handed the money over to the guards. And these guys, these criminals, they made off with thousands of dollars because they stood there looking like bank guards and they seemed to be the authorities. Now, if I had hung a sign on the ATM and stood there in my, you know, sweater and blue jeans and, and the sign said, give your money to Nancy, nobody would give, give me any money, right? But it's that idea of authority, like, you know, uh, the, the trappings, you know, the clothes that you wear, the, the you know, the, the things that you have in the background, the, you know, things that make you feel like, oh, that person can be trusted. A, a, a friend of mine, this is really interesting. Uh, we were in New York City and she was trying to pull into a parking space at the same time someone else was trying to back into it. And so there was this standoff and parking spaces in New York City are very hard to come by. So no one wanted to yield. So somebody's, you know, partly pulled in, somebody is partway backed in. There's a standoff and uh, my friend who was in the car, she had some friends standing in the sidewalk. So they saw the whole thing happen. And one of them said, I'm going to go, I'm going to go get someone. And, and she went off thinking she'd find a police officer. And she, she ended up coming back with a hotel bellhop. And when I, I said to her, why did you bring back the bellhop? She said, well, I couldn't find a police officer, but at least this guy had a uniform on, you know, which was a great example of the authority principle. It was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to find someone of authority. He's got a uniform. Maybe he can come and, and solve the problem. So it's, it is funny, but, um, People respond to authority. It's a decision-making shortcut. We're, we're taught that when we're young and it stays with us when we're old. So for my final test, I again tweaked an email subject line. This was for one of my newsletters. My newsletter was about Maya Shanker. Maya was a behavioral scientist hired by Obama to apply behavioral science across the US government. So I thought, let's test a little bit of the authority bias to try and boost the open rate of the email. I had two subject lines. One read, this one word change boosted enrollment by 9%. That was the control. The authority bias version said, how Obama's behavioral scientist boosted enrollment by 9%. Now, as always on Nudge, I share the success stories and the failures. And this one, it failed. The Obama subject line, which I thought would trigger the authority bias because Obama is a man of authority, was president of the United States and has this aura around him, a bit of a halo effect. I thought that would trigger the authority bias, but it didn't. It had a 3% lower open rate. It did get more clicks, but still the authority bias did not work. Why? Why is this? Well, authority bias works best when somebody in authority is advising you or a group of people to do something. And I think I applied this bias the wrong way. I wasn't saying Obama says you should open this email. I was merely name checking him. Uh, and that didn't work. It probably tested the halo effect a bit, but definitely didn't test the authority bias. I also think the subject line I used for my control was, was just better copy. It read the one word change to boost enrollment. It's simple. It's enticing. It's triggering a bit of the information gap that we mentioned earlier. And it won this test. But that definitely doesn't mean that the authority bias isn't a valid bias. In fact, there is lots of evidence that backs this bias up, including a brilliant study with our distant relatives, monkeys. Robert Diener, Amit Kira and Michael Platt, previously of Duke University, measured how much a group of male macaques valued signals of status and sex. The researchers discovered that to get a monkey to look at photos of a low authority macaque, they needed to bribe the monkey with lots of juice. But the photos of the high authority monkeys were so enticing 
that the monkeys were willing to forgo juice just to glimpse them. In other words, the monkeys required more payment to view low-authority monkeys, but were willing to pay to view powerful high-authority monkeys, all of which suggests that these animals place a high value on markers of authority. And we are not all too different from those monkeys. In one study cited in Stuart Sutherland's book Irrationality, telephone calls were made to nurses by uh, people claiming to be a doctor. Now, the nurses had never met this doctor before or never heard this doctor speak before. But the doctor told the nurse to give the patient a 20 milligram dose of a drug called aspartin, adding that the nurse must give it immediately. The doctor added that they would sign the prescription later on that day. Now, despite the fact that the doctor had ordered twice the maximum dose set out on the label, and that there was a rule that no nurse should administer a drug before the doctor had signed the prescription, 95% of the nurses approached complied to this request. In this case, the nurse is simply following authority, even though it went against the rules. And I think that is the power of authority. All of us use shortcuts to make decisions. We don't always evaluate options evenly. We make snap decisions, often based off biases. If you understand these biases, you can not only understand how they affect you, but you can learn why some people are more effective at changing behaviours than others. Hopefully your takeaway from this episode isn't just to try a few tweaks in your email subject lines. Instead, I hope you start to see how these nudges can be used across society for good. For example, authority bias can help you understand why a politician commands more respect than you might expect. The information gap can help you figure out why your friends can't ditch TikTok. An input bias might reveal why you prefer baked bread from your local baker. These biases affect all of us in all of our decisions. Taking the time to test them for yourself is arguably the best way for you to understand how behaviour change happens. Okay, folks, that is all for today. Now, I can't thank Nancy enough for coming on the show. She's genuinely one of my favourite guests and her book, Using Behavioural Science in Marketing, is an absolute must-read for marketers. So if you want to go pick up a copy of that book, I've left a link to it in the show notes. I'd really recommend every marketer goes and reads it. I do hope you're enjoying these shows. As you may have noticed, I'm putting a bit more effort into each show, trying to find the very best studies and examples to share. If you are enjoying the shows, then please let me know. You can tweet me at P underscore Agnew, that's P underscore A-G-N-E-W, or you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm Phil Agnew on there. Also, please do sign up to my newsletter by going to nudgepodcast.com and hitting newsletter in the menu. If you do that, you'll be able to email me directly with any questions you have, and you'll be able to see all the experiments I'm running firsthand. Just a quick note on the tests that I have shared today. You can actually see these tests for yourself in the show notes. I've dropped links to each of them in there. So head to the show notes and take a look if you're interested. And finally, if you are in marketing and you want to learn even more about these nudges and how to apply them to your work, please do go and check out my course. My course is called The Science of Marketing Course, and it walks through how behavior science can be used at each stage of the marketing funnel. So go and take a look at that. You can watch the first few lessons in the course for free and see if it's for you. If you want to have a look, go to nudgepodcast.com and click course in the menu. Okay, folks, thanks again for listening. The growth of this show over the past few months has been genuinely humbling and I really appreciate all of your support. As always, I'm your host, Phil Agnew, and you've been listening to Nudge. See you again next week for another episode.